Welcome to the Big Fellas Podcast, where we chop it up about all things past, present, and future about the game of basketball. Where facts, stats, and context reign supreme. That is blasphemous. Sometimes it gets crazy, but we always keep it real. Always keep it real. Get ready to learn from players, coaches, and fans from all levels of the game and see the court in a brand new way. And now, fresh off the sidelines, here's your host, John Hartofillis. What it do, fellas, and welcome to the Big Fellas Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, J.H., coming to you from New York City, the mecca of basketball. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Ronnie Nunn, former NBA director of officials. Ronnie has refereed Legends of the Game for decades, while also being in charge of organizing all of the officials in the association. In this episode, we spoke about the skills needed to be an NBA referee, his role as director of officials for eight years, and the nuances behind making the right call. We've got a going in store for you today, fellas. Episode number 30, Ronnie Nunn, former NBA director of officials. Hey, Ronnie, what's going on? Hey, John, good to meet you. Good to be with you. Good to, good to meet you. Finally meet you, too. I'm, I'm really excited about this call. I've, I've been keeping up with your content on B-Ball Breakdown for, for years now, and it's, it's awesome to finally get to meet you. Hey, uh, I feel likewise, and uh, I'm also very proud of, of your uh, of your launch into what you're doing, especially here on podcast kind of things that are going on today. For such a young person who is absorbing so much information, you're also going to be the expositor of great information, too, from what you're doing. It's great learning, hands-on experience for you as a, as a student and, uh, and as a coach. Uh, I think it's great, and it's great, it's great to work with you, especially another young person you know, going, uh, going up the climb of a ladder to God knows what successes you'll be able to accomplish. Wow, thank you so much. That was beautiful. So, I mean, really, I just wanted to, just to start off, we can get into kind of, how did you get introduced to the game of basketball when you were, when you were younger? You know, I was a baseball guy. I grew up in the East New York section of Brooklyn, and there was big baseball going on at that time. Uh, and I lived right across the street from a park, and there were some good basketball players in the park, but the biggest, uh, the biggest sport that we all played was, of course, something with a ball and a stick. So from a ball and a stick to baseball and then a little league and being a pitcher and uh, I had good size, I, I was pretty good at baseball. It came very naturally because it also was introduced to me very young. I mean, by five, six years old, I was into it. I'm sure a lot of dads uh, did that with kids anyway. My dad wasn't about that, but uh, I, my friends on the block, it, it, the block was... Uh, you know, much different than living in the suburbs and going to a community center. This was when we hit the street, it was all playing. And, and of course, I lived across from a high school that had a field and had, it gave us some space there in Brooklyn. So it, it, it allowed me to get involved. So um, baseball was the first joy. And then when I got around into seventh, eighth grade at junior high, because I was taller at, you know, at that time, maybe six, six, one, that's when I was introduced. And, um, I, I, I kind of liked it. It was a small gym in um, junior high school, Lincoln Junior High School 171, but we played and I, that's when I really got introduced to it. And then of course I got into it a lot more by the time I was in the ninth grade. And then at that time I took the test for Brooklyn Tech and uh, baseball and basketball were my key things. I began to um, meet more people through Brooklyn Tech basketball because the student population came from all five boroughs. So when I went to visit a teammate, I was going to the Bronx, which I'd never been to really, you know, 
to Harlem uh, and, and out further to Queens. I was going to Staten Island. I was going to places that when you go to a local high school, you don't meet kids from those areas to where you would go and visit. And that's when the real, the real thing about basketball came about. I really got worked up into it. I always tell people I left baseball because basketball had cheerleaders and baseball didn't. <laughs> so uh, it, it was just, it was that experience that lured me away from baseball completely. And uh, even though I played it in high school, I did not play it in college, although I was asked to get involved with it. I just loved basketball so much. And from that point on, it's been basketball. No, that's awesome. And, and definitely the energy in basketball is something you just can't match for any other sport. So uh, while you were at Brooklyn Tech, did you ever get come in contact with uh, Xavier High School just in downtown Manhattan? Xavier, yes. Uh, when I first started in, uh, in officiating, um, Xavier became a place uh, during the summer that was played indoor basketball and had many, many pro players involved. Very, very good college players that were no longer in college at that time. I think the NCAA had a, had a rule against college and pro players playing together in tournaments. Of course, the famed Rucker tournament was an outside great tournament. And Xavier, who was run by um, and who established it at Xavier, a man named John Andres. He used to be the uh, New York Nick commentator uh, a wonderful man who we've lost um, in I think, the past few years. Um, and he also was a Fordham fine basketball player. So uh, to, to get an assignment at Xavier was a big deal. And it was one of my first assignments after my first year in the Ruck, in the uh, Pro-Am tournament. And, um, and then I had been in the Pro-Am and then that, that year I was a little bit in the Rucker. And if I got a game or two in a month for Xavier, it was a big deal. It was a competitive tournament, great facility, and the fans just packed the place. So Xavier High School, it was my first introduction to see a school in the middle of a street. I never realized the school was there, but it looked like a very nice prep school. That's awesome. And I, I really didn't know about those games taking place. There's, there's a really cool picture in the coach's office of uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar playing in, our, in, the, in the commons, our second gym, which at the time was our first gym. And you uh, see him doing a skyhook. It's a really close-up picture. It's super blurry, black and white, but it's pretty, it's pretty cool to see like, how there's history behind that. Uh, that's really cool. And I'm definitely going to have to ask Coach McGrain, who's been there now for, he's been there for, this is going to be his 30th season. So he probably started a little bit after you, you started officiating in the NBA. So um, I'll have to ask him about all those because he must have been around to, to at least see that back in, in the 80s. That's, that's really cool. Listen, there was some great Catholic high school basketball and it, it came to be building more and more. And of course, Kareem was at power. So Power and Xavier games were big, but they were both Manhattan schools. And uh, I'm sorry to see Power Memorial uh, not continue in its uh, education and, and basketball uh, prowess, you know, because, of course, Kareem made it, obviously, being the, one of the greatest players, in the, you know, ever. So uh, coming from there and uh, so, hey, it, it was a good time. So uh, Xavier was a great place. Uh, that's so awesome. And then what, during that, you're, you're in your college years, an assistant coach at Pace. What ends up sparking that transition for you? Officiating in the NBA is, uh, is uh, it was, you know, this is funny. When I was at Pace, uh, I had also come back from um, playing basketball overseas after my GW years in uh, D.C. And, um, and I was still interested in trying to be a pro basketball player. I didn't have a really good college uh game at the time and going to Mexico, for example, I played with a number of Olympic players on the team that I was, was given an opportunity to play for. And I really learned a lot more through the Olympic coach there named Gustavo Sayante on 
how to play basketball as a point guard and as a two guard, really not worrying about scoring so much. And it really rounded out my abilities. And that's what got me to, to be at uh, uh, NBA camps. Like uh, first it was an ABA camp at Denver, then it was the Nick camp, and then there was the net camp. And I fared pretty well. But one of the conditions I had in Mexico is I got ill and um, with, with a hepatitis uh, because I just got so involved in the community and enjoying it. started eating everything. So I, I think I caught some bad food somewhere uh, on, a, on, a, on a hot dog stand that we see in New York City. They had one down there, but it, you know, I guess it's just not health, uh, health sanctioned as well. But anyway, I got sick and I had to get away from uh, basketball altogether because I was creating other problems with liver and kidney. So I figured I was done with athletics because anytime I did something more, my, my blood work and everything would come out bad. So I, I you know, focused on getting work in the city. I got my license as a teacher. I went up to uh, later on uh, to Pleasantville and got appointed as a teacher in, uh, at the Cottage School, a well-known kind of special ed school district. And I uh, got a couple more degrees, one in special ed, which is applicable to refereeing sometimes in the NBA. Uh, with gifted and talented people who have emotional stigmas to them. But uh, so I, I did all of that. And then uh, a gentleman named Cecil Watkins, who was involved with both the NBA and the Department of Parks in, in uh, New York City, uh, was when I was getting better, he created this Pro-Am League. And then I was playing in it and uh, to see if my body could just get back into athletics. And, and it did. Um, and I knew I wasn't going away anymore, but I began to play. And he's, that's when he said to me, what are you doing? Uh, I said, well, I'm teaching at a special ed school district. I'm the assistant basketball coach at Pace, which is also up in Pleasantville at the time. Um, and I said, so it's a real nice fix and uh, I'm finishing another degree and I'm good. He said, well, you ought to be a referee. So I was thinking you ought to consider refereeing. I, I was thinking it was high school refereeing. And I said, you know, I'm not really interested in officiating. And, um, you know, that was it. And then he said, well, now, how about the NBA? That's what I'm talking about. And I said, the NBA. And I, I kind of put my fingers in a cross and said, don't even talk to me about the NBA. I'm, I almost uh, died trying to make it and not healing my body enough to, uh, to, to get into that. So anyway, he bugged me as I played in this league for three years about if you're if you have talent, we can teach you. If you have talent, we can teach you. And by the time I was about the end of 29 years old, close to 30, uh, I said, oh, okay, what's this about? He said, well, look, we need more basketball players to consider officiating. Uh, if you have talent, we can teach you. And um, you, you've, got, you've got a good background in education and whatnot to maybe be able to learn quicker, but it, it takes a certain kind of individual. So I went home. I told my wife about this opportunity. I had three college degrees and a, and a, and a good um, teaching career ahead of me. So I asked the school if they would uh, give me a sabbatical when I finally joined in. But the bottom line is I went and worked the Pro-Am games as an official, which shocked a lot of the guys, like, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, I'm gonna see about if I like this. Two years in there, two years in the CBA, which was the Continental Basketball Association, and then the following year, um, that summer of 1984, I was hired by the NBA. That was four years of really putting my feet and head and everything and jumping in the water uh, to try to change my life to see if something like this in, in basketball, particularly pro basketball, which I always wanted to get to, 
was going to work. I did miss out on coaching life. I, I loved coaching because I loved teaching. And then later on in my years at the NBA, I ended up becoming director, which got me back to teaching and evaluating and, and really attempting to improve performance every innovative way I could think of. And that's how it got to be what it was. It's kind of crazy. You were offered it. You're like, NBA, what? And then it just, it just happens. So yeah. you, you kind of touched on a little bit about the talent of being an NBA referee. What is that for people that kind of don't understand that? What, is, what does that look like? I, I think beside knowing the rules and beside knowing um, uh, 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 the interpretations of contact and also specific rules, I mean, there's a lot of things to, to remember. And of course, when you're in a game, you got to remember them, you know, and, and know what they, how to apply them. I think the talent, really comes from, uh, some people would say, you know, you played basketball, you coached it, refereeing should be easy. Refereeing is really a remote angle of that triangle of playing, coaching, and officiating. It's the real remote one. Most of us don't go to it. Most of us learn it late. And uh, there's, there's an understanding of uh, how well you do certain things. One is how well you make calls. The other is how believable you are. Uh, the other is how you work with um, the, the, the clientele that you're, that you're the authority of, really, between coaching coaches and players, um, how consistent you are in your, your play calling. Um, the rest was teaching me what play calling really looked like when, as a referee compared to how I felt play calling felt when I was playing, you know, or or when a coach like I had done when you, when you referee a scrimmage or the college scrimmage, you 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 kind of say, all right, no, that's a foul, take it out on the side, you know, and, and some of the other little nuances that people don't know about that filter into officiating that don't filter in a regular practice run by a coach. So um, long story short, uh, it, it, it be, once you begin to learn what you're looking for, that's when you begin to polish how and when you blow the whistle and how and when you don't. The difference between uh, negotiated contact and non-negotiable contact. You know, the difference between rhythm, speed, balance, and quickness on contacts. Um, uh, the, the way in which to wear, take your eyes at certain places. We all watch a dribbler. And even if we're watching one-on-one, -on -one, you've got to focus on the defender because the defender makes 90% of the fouls. So you've got to see what that defender does. So in a simple way, if it's block charge, I'm not looking at the time of the collision. I'm really looking at the time where that defender is coming to pick up as a secondary defender or a primary defender. What is he doing? Then I can always go back and see what the offense has done or not done. And um, But if you try to get them together at the window, you really don't know what happened at the corner collision of a street, you know? So you got to see... You know, you got to see the stop sign first, and then you can see how the car comes to it. And 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 that's basically uh, some of the skills that you build. And if you can build those, that's talent. And if you can memorize what you have to, that's hard work and uh, and and a giftedness that you need to you know work at like anything else in life that you work at. So it's not as great as being. Um, a doctor or maybe a lawyer in the education of those things, but it is a unique position when you're judging situations and you're trying to judge things fairly. So I think in that regard, you've got, you know, two sides of the aisle and, you know, there's complaints from one team to another, from players to another player, coaches to another in style. So you just want to be fair, but you want to be a good judge.
and be a consistent one and be a fair one. Of course. And I mean, I can't wait to unpack this because there's so much, uh, so many nuances to refereeing that casual fan doesn't know about. So just uh, as you were saying, you were talking about how refs, there's, a, there's a talent refereeing. One that I've heard often is that refs being in, in really good health to be able to run up and down the court and can keep up with, the, with, these, with these professional players, but then also have to go referee back-to-back games and a travel with different cities. Can you kind of go into that a little bit for people that don't really know about that? Yeah, I think um, one thing about officiating in the NBA especially is uh, you have to be in good health and you have to maintain rest and uh, you, you have to um, be sharp. You know, it's funny. The officials are, they can run, they're in shape, but it's your eyes that can deceive you. And if you're not well rested, uh, things can flicker by in a game, even though you almost can be in position for something. But you'll say, did I see that right or not? Because maybe your energy is too percolated, like you have too much coffee in your system, or maybe you didn't get enough sleep and your reactive ability is not responding to when you need it. Your ability to differentiate things uh, is coming in slow or it's coming in uh, unclear. That, that comes from rest. So one thing hard about officiating is if you have a back-to-back game, you're responsible to getting on the first flight the next day after that game to the new city that you're going to. And when you go to that new city, um, many times we have an 11 o'clock meeting. So if you're in a six o'clock or seven o'clock flight, um, you, you, you get into that city, let's say it's a two hour away city, you're going from uh, Chicago to Atlanta. Uh, by the time you get in and um, you know you get on the, either the hotel van or you're, or you're a crew chief like I was and you pick up the, the rental car, you get in, let's say about nine o'clock, you may not wanna eat because your body still feels like you need to sleep more. And uh, there's an 11 o'clock meeting and, and every day there's a game day meeting. So uh, sometimes we'll say, look, let's have a meeting over lunch because somebody can get some more hours of sleep. So a lot of times people get their rest then, but if you're looking for an NBA referee on any day, especially a game day, you will find him in his room trying to get that afternoon nap somewhere between 1.30 and 4. Because if you don't get it, you, you just become sluggish. And if you're not sluggish because you can beat it because you're in such great shape, your eyes will deceive you because that part of your, your body is not rested and alert enough for the action and the activity that comes about. So that's one of the toughest things about officiating is the travel. Uh, and you're away about from November on, which starts the season, basically, uh, you're away about 22 days a month. Now they're not all in a row, but you know, you come home and I had a young family. So I used to try to get home quickly, um, you know, from the Chicago's and the Atlanta's. Uh, and I was also fortunate to live in our area where I can, you know, have the Nets, have the Knicks, have the 76's and have the Celtics close by. Uh, and, and even Washington, where I went to school, I mean, uh, they have the Wizards, um, uh, which at one time was the Bullets, and they have the Wizards. So I could run home and, uh, you know, be home to see my kids at night, you know, or sometimes or in the morning, you know, get back and take them to the bus stop, all suburban kind of stuff you do since we moved um, up this way after I got that teaching job. So uh, it's funny, I got that teaching job in July of 84, and in August of 84, uh, I uh, 
you know, had been living in Danbury, moving this far up. And then August, August of, uh, of 84, I also got a, a call to be appointed to the NBA. So I was a long way from New York and its airports, but I knew New York, I wasn't going to go to Hartford, which is the same distance. I just knew that, you know, if it's a snow out at LaGuardia, Newark may be open. If Newark is dealing with fog or, or Hawaii's fog, Kennedy may be open. So you begin to become a very, very good traveler because you're really on your own and you grow up fast. And um, I also learned not to be late. I was kind of a guy always bordered on being late and the plane don't wait for you, man. So you, you got to be there. And, uh, and of course today with the restrictions and, uh, and the, you know, the getting through a security, if you got a seven o'clock flight, you're even up at five o'clock. And don't forget the night before in the game, you're still worked up. Not to mention the game report, not to mention several significant plays that you may have to look at as a crew before you go to sleep. Those things lay on your head um, and, and they weigh on you because of calls you didn't make right. And uh, sometimes you get a phone call at night and, and, uh, and someone is saying, I want you guys to look at the first quarter. I didn't like it by the supervisor or whatever have you. So just think about it. By the time you shut down and have a tuna fish sandwich and maybe a soup, uh, it's one o'clock and you're up at five. That's, that's, a, hard, that's a hard life. And uh, you got to make sure you're prepared to do that by finding places to sleep. And, uh, and I think all of us do that. So now that you've retired from refereeing, what do you, what's that process like for you in, in teaching uh, up and coming refs just how to, how to both deal with the physical side of it that you just described, but also whether it's through New Hoops IQ, B-ball breakdown with the court call with Ronnie Nunn, that's, that's how I found you. What, what, what's kind of the best way you find and how you teach the game that way? Well, I have my camp called the None Better Refs Camp and it's, you know, nonebetterrefs.com. Of course, we've been on hold this summer because of COVID. And I'm glad about that. Uh, but it gives me a chance to continue my teaching as I did as a director. Um, I also have a Twitter account at None Better Refs where I get a lot of questions coming in from young uh, fan aficionados like yourself and coaches and others. Um, it was a good experience also when I was a director to, uh, to do the, the first show ever of Making the Call with Ronnie Nunn. Uh, that, that really was a teaching program. I got used to looking at the camera and realized that uh, it doesn't have to have people there. I have to teach something, you know, and, and also call out the times when we were wrong and when we were obviously correct uh, to, to make people understand that officiating is difficult. It's, a, it's like taking an examination every night and you're, you're trying to score high um, and also you, you're hoping a variable like making the last, making a call at the last minute or last second is wrong, which no matter how good you did, it's going to hurt. So there are some of those incidentals that come up. So teaching the game has brought me back to my roots of being, a, 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 trying to be a good teacher. Uh, I'm always a believer that mentoring by the right people really launches people. If you have the wrong teacher, if you have the wrong coach, if you have the uh, and I don't want to say that they're wrong, but if there's not a if there's not an understanding on the learning piece, and you miss the mark, uh, I always felt bad if I missed the mark with any student that I was working with or any colleague, especially when I became the director. I I, I wanted to make sure because of my special education background, with working with kids that um, high schoolers that could 
that had different modalities that they learned better in a way. Uh, I, I brought that to my directorship too, how to, how to try to work with people to get better because I knew that not everyone learns the same way, but the road is to the same location. So, um, so teaching in that vein really helps me and the question and answers that I get on, a, on those places I was telling you about keeps me alive and, uh, and allows me to speak where when, you know, when you're in the MBA, you can't really always talk about every integral thing uh, because you work for a company that uh, is also, by the way, an outstanding company. I, I don't want, ever want to think that my opportunities in the MBA as a referee and as a director and as a media person and uh, hasn't advanced my life tremendously. I mean, uh, each, each job was difficult uh, and, um, and each job requires the attention and I think as a director, it was one of the greatest uh, and most difficult jobs to do when you're getting a group of men and women together to perform as, as consistently as you would want them to. That, that was my most difficult in, job in the NBA. Refereeing, when I finally got a hold of it and worked with two other people on the court, first I came in with only two-person mechanics, and then the three-person came in. Um, it was a safe place to work. Uh, you know, we, we worked really well together, but when you have 60 people to be in charge of and people are concerned about promotions and demotions and when can I be a crew chief and uh, how can I keep, continue to keep my job, it, it's, it becomes much more straining on someone that leads people like that. It's a, it's a strain. I like, I like refing on the floor more than being a director, but I'm actually... Uh, felt I could be a better director because of my teaching experience. What I thought was really cool was uh, the NBA obviously out of the third referee in 1988. How did that change the process of refereeing a game? Obviously it changed like where you guys stand on the court, but what, what did it change in terms of like the process of it all? Well, the process really was back to the court. The back to the court was, okay, so where are my, for lack of another term, where, where are my zones? Where, where am I looking at? I know, we all know how to ref two-person mechanics and we know where we're looking for. What does the third guy do at the free throw line extended? I mean, how do we, and how do we rotate that people, those people out of that position and get back to the two-man person uh, action? So there's a combination of two-person mechanics, including on the third. And I remember when I, now don't forget, I was never a referee prior to these programs at 30 years old. So when they put me on the sideline and they said, you've got to get all weak side rebounding, I said, geez, I don't know if I like this angle because when I look over to the low box on the sideline and there's two guys, especially when they're stacked and I can't see that space, I don't know who's pushing who and who's faking me. So there was, I had to learn what the calls that I'm looking for, what activity am I looking for on that? And I think we all struggled with those that came in from two-person mechanics, especially the NBAers that were already on staff. Um, I think, I don't recall if college had the third person at that time, but when we began to hire that third person, many, many came from the colleges because they had big gym, big arena, you know, uh, a background and experience, but in the NBA, there, there is no place like the NBA. So it's a, another learning curve for everybody that joins in. And many of the officials that came in also struggled not only with positioning, but contact, working with coaches, working with players, 
Um, I've always had the feeling that in college, coaches had a great deal of power over officials, whether they wanted them to do games for them or not. But in the NBA, one thing I really um, embraced was the fact that when you worked for the NBA as an official, the NBA was in control of your destinies. Uh, that doesn't mean that the coaches didn't have a rating, the general managers don't have a rating, the scouts that the NBA employs in the stands don't have a rating, uh, your supervisor doesn't have a rating, uh, your, your vice president of operations don't, doesn't have a rating. It's kind of a five-pronged thing. So it's not like you're, you, you can get away, but you don't have to kind of acquiesce to being to times when you should give a technical to a coach and you try to continue to let him go because I think in, in, in college officiating sometimes there's so much power that way. Uh, officials have a hard time working because they don't want to upset anybody. Well, the NBA looks for balls and strikes. And if you can throw strikes and along with manage yourself with people, because that's always important. It's not like they're a non-entity. Uh, and get along with that. Coaches also recognize that their dealings are really with the players. Some may even call it a player's league, even having more power than a coach. So there's a different dynamic going along. And no matter what you do at the highest level of professional sports, everything is always on the line. If you don't tape a guy right, you may lose your training position as a trainer. I mean, it, it, everything is pressure on everybody and uh, it's it's dealing with the uh, very gifted people and uh, not only players, but coaches that have come from college and coaches and <clears throat> some that have come from playing to adapt. Some can make it, some can't make it. And it's the same with officiating. Some come from the inner city like I did uh, with the Xavier tournament and the Rucker and had a successful career. Some come from the NCAA the fi final fours and didn't have a, a successful career. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting field. It's one that I think should be taught in the school system, you know, in the curriculums where kids may play a game and then all of a sudden part of the curriculum is can you ref the game? So I, I think all those things help with the socialization of the game for people. Oh, definitely. That's, that's all super interesting. And then as the director of officials, what did that kind of day-to-day -day look like for you? It's, it's really a position that, you know, you don't hear much about, but it's obviously so instrumental in, in governing and how refs operate. Yeah, well, one of the things about, uh, you know, it reminds me when I was a dean uh, in the junior high school system in New York, where all the problems, you know, come to you. Every teacher that's got a problem <laughs> going down to the dean. So I recall that and I remember there were complaints and there, it was, you know, many times they were cordial and sometimes emotional, but your coaches and GMs would call. Most GMs also spoke to the executive VP uh, because that's their line, so to speak. And coaches might do both, get me and, and uh, the executive VP about complaints about a game and what have you. But every day that I walked in, it was a review of technical fouls. It was a review of any commentary that came into the office. People were unhappy with certain things. It was a review from um, my, uh, my uh, supervisors, four of them that monitored 15 people in a group of 60 officials. And um, maybe there would be information about a game they saw that didn't have any notoriety to it, but maybe the game was not officiated well or a certain referee uh, that we're looking at in terms of how to improve him. Uh, has turned the corner, maybe hasn't turned the corner. So it, it was kind of it was kind of a position where you get in information on an everyday basis, 
And uh, some, some things are tough when you're on the 15th floor of the NBA. That's the floor of David Stern and all the top brass of, uh, uh, of the guys that, uh, that run the league, uh, the, the lawyers as well, because by the way, lawyering in the league is very important as it relates to rules and what have you. And people make cases. They make a case for you know, seconds on a clock or uh, deflections or how much time should come off. There's so many different variables um, one, of, one of the strengths I always felt I had was not, not only with the rules, but with the playing of the game, you know, refer, playing the game got back to me because I became a good ref or, you know, an average plus ref. Um, and, and that's when I incorporated the better understanding of contacts and looks and what players were trying to do. Cause I recall my own time playing and, and whether it's bigs or, 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 or forwards or guards on screens or, you know, pick and rolls. I began to understand the game even better when I watched it and, or I was on the court. And certainly as director, I had, a, I could talk to coaches to a degree, not to the level that they knew that I learned from them on some X's and O's because I had been out of it. But I also thought I was sharing with them uh, how we can assert ourselves and adapt ourselves to what they're teaching because some teach things that say, let's take an advantage of this when, when uh, an advantage is really illegal, you know? So they're, they're very, coaches are two things. They're, they're uh, great orators and great leaders and great motivators, uh, but they also look for the incredible ways in which to win against their opponent. And, uh, and they tell their players and what to do. And, uh, and we just want to make sure that whatever they're doing, it's legal. And sometimes, you know, we have to catch up with uh, players are always ahead, and I'm sure coaches are too, ahead of the standard of rules. They're always at the uh, precipice of a rule that they think they can get, can get over on. And sometimes it takes a while because they are getting over on it. And we notice, you know, that's really three steps that... Larry Bird is taking when he steps back to go to the three-point line and he doesn't actually dribble and he does this standing still. Can he do that? You know, and all of a sudden some coach complains and you go, he's right. So that's how some of the more focused things come about. Coaches give us information of some things that are going wrong or some things that they need us to address. And it's always very fair that they do that. Of course. And then what, like what you're saying about going back and checking the tape and, and figuring this stuff out, five days before the NBA shut down, I was given the opportunity to go to the NBA replay center in, in the offices in Secaucus. And I went in, it was like the, it was like the Holy grail of, of basketball, just being in that room as a ref or obviously, or as director, what was it like kind of operating out of that room and having like, that must've been awesome. Having calls go from a, a game in LA all the way over to Secaucus. And then that call be given back. What was that like for you? Well, that was interesting because in, uh, in the day that we began to do instant replay, um, the instant replay wasn't done through the Secaucus office. I would have to go to the table and turn around either the national camera, and if the national camera didn't have the feed, maybe I'd have to go to the opponent's camera uh, that was feeding back to their, you know, their, their city. And I'd try to find a play that was permissible to look at, obviously. But today, I think there's a great advantage to instant replay in certain situations. And uh, of course, the, the fear of instant replay was not, it, it wasn't something that all of a sudden was gonna open up so much that the game became stunted and stopped too much. 
Uh, I think it really has helped the accuracy of the game for officials. As I mentioned earlier, some things are a flicker. When people ask me what's the toughest call in the NBA, it's, it's not block charge or goaltending. It's the out-of-bounds flickering of two hands or a body and, and a hand or whatever, trying to figure out who's, whose ball it belongs to because it's very, very fast. So I think it has helped. And I think it, uh, it also is a little confusing because sometimes you go over and uh, you, you're looking for one thing and you see another. And we had to incorporate that into the, you know, like we, we can't talk about that because we're really here for this. But all of a sudden, how can you not attend to that? You know, uh, you know, the out of bounds line when you see a guy, uh, you know, let's say to make it bigger, that you see a guy flagrantly bow a guy, you know, elbow a guy. So they, they've tried to do better with it and they are. And like, I think it, the only thing that's a negative about instant replay sometimes is the officials begin to use it as a crutch too much. And in my era, you know, we had to make calls on whether they were two or three on, on a shot from the perimeter, you know, and we worked to get in positions better. Uh, I think sometimes, even though the game is perimeter right now, in my view, from being around basketball for such a long time, uh, these things are cyclical. You know, right now, it's, right now it reminds me of the old ABA game where the three-point line became, uh, you know, something they inserted. Uh, there's no red, white, and blue ball for us, but it was a gimmick to attract people and teams were, were, were pretty good. Uh, four of those teams were brought into the NBA, and I think a couple of others could have. Maybe, maybe the population couldn't support a team like, for example, the Kentucky Colonels that won won the ABA uh, championship under Hubie Brown. But, but whatever it is, they've included the game to be more on the outskirts. But I think as bigs get get better and get closer to the hoop, because you still need those baskets, you're going to see guys like Embiid if they want to win in Philly, they're going to have to take advantage of his talent closer to the basket. And, uh, and I think those days are going to come up because centers are more mobile today than ever. Um, you know, and, uh, and years back, I remember that centers were kind of plotty, like cultish. Their feet couldn't get really good. They, but, but, you know, Akeem Olajuwon and Ewing, people like that came along that could really uh, use their feet well and not travel, you know, and things like that. Because I can remember say, uh, being told, Let's not be too over-officious when a big gets the ball and his feet may slip here and there. Let him get steadied. And now once he's steadied, let's see what his traveling issues are. And if they are overt, we should call it. And now today, uh, you don't have to wait on that. You, you should call it when you see it. So I think the game is transferring itself and will always, like everything else, recycle. In my era in the late 60s, early 70s, bell bottoms were in okay <laughs> trust me bell bottoms will be coming back or you know continental tight leg pants with a longer shoe is in now well they were they were back you know in the late early 60s uh, with certain suits and you know thin ties versus fat ties and things are cyclical in this world and nothing is new under the sun says the good book so um it, it, these things will come back and officials have to uh, adapt to what it is but the mechanics of the of the game of where you belong to see plays really remains the same for what's going on now. 
That's, that's super interesting. And you obviously touched on a little bit about traveling and, and bigs and how, and also now that they've kind of evolved, um, especially a guy like Giannis, he's kind of the modern NBA big. A lot, he gets a lot of criticism, him, LeBron, guys like that for the, for the or, and especially James Harden for the gather step. If you can go into a little bit detail about that, because I know, I know you and coach Nick religiously talk about that on B-Ball Breakdown. And I've really tried to spread awareness of the fact that the gather step is not a travel. If you can kind of break that down for us. Yeah. And you know what? The gather step has not been a travel for years. And the reason why I know that is because when I was 12 and 13 years old and 14, when I was going out into communities where basketball was at a higher level than across the street in my park, uh, I, I saw action uh, movements that were quite unique. And our referees at that time, at that pro level, whether it was at the Rucker or was at Xavier, uh, were seeing those things, recognizing that this was an, kind of a subtle evolution of the game. So I can remember gather steps and the Euro steps being done at the Rucker tournament and at Xavier uh, all the time. I mean, sometimes I feel, uh, you know, whether it's Ginobili doing the Euro step, I mean, I'm saying, you know, it's not really a Euro step, guys. Uh, it's really, it's really the kind of broken field running that's permitted once you gather the ball. So. Uh, now, believe me, initially that was not allowed in basketball because as you look at old films, once you grab the ball or you know, um, secured a basketball from a catch or from the end of a dribble, the foot that was down was really a pivot. And if you look at some old films, it was actually a, a stunted movement. I mean, you just get the ball, you'd have to stop if you had nowhere to go and then you'd have to pass again. Maybe that encouraged more passing. <laughs> I don't know, but you were forced to stop or shoot. So as the game evolved, you will see the same time period where the game was also played differently with a gather one, two step. And if you look at some old films, the gather one, two step was there, zero, one, two. Um, the NBA, who's, you know, I think colleges and the traditionalists used to kind of not like the NBA because maybe it was, it was kind of, um, maybe they saw it as a, you know, you could do anything you want kind of thing. You know how people get all involved, just like we have the social order of today or some disorder, uh, you know, people get it exaggerated, you know, and don't focus in on the real deal to, to reduce this exaggeration. So I, I think some of the people uh, that are traditionalists wanted to keep the game at a certain place. I mean, nobody ever put their ball to the side of the dribble to do a crossover. Uh, the ball, the hand was always on top of the ball uh, during the early 50s and late 40s because that's the way we understood it. But there's an evolution to the game and the game becomes more artistic. And, uh, and then you have to sort of generate, okay, so what is the rule about palming well if you have your boy hand to the side of the ball did the palm get under it well no but that's the, that's the criteria do you get the palm under the ball and thank goodness uh dr naismith you know put some good things in there that we still use and it's just a matter of exaggerating those moves but are you know pretty clear and consistent i think the only one that the world is now because of my work with fever in the euroleague and the nbl of australia uh, in watching their games and consulting for them uh, on their preseason camp too. Uh, they're doing this all over the world now. So I think that at the time I was in the NBA, I pushed this. Um, and of course, when you make a rule or something in the NBA, you, you really have to have the whole uh, board and committee on board with you. 
but the interpretation that was under the radar was always that way. And um, I try to articulate that in the league. Uh, but now they finally, upon uh, my ending years, they began to articulate and put it in the rule book and in a manual. And uh, it was something that was always going along. Nothing new to coaches and players, but we had to get it out, I think, for the greater fan base. That's great. I mean, and, and it's, uh, thank you so much for that because it's so informative, especially for people that, that are newer to the game that just say, oh, two steps. And they don't understand the concept of zero, one, two is so important to just keep on spreading because it ends up causing a lot of confusion, especially when, whether you're at a game and you just hear people yelling travel when it's when people that know obviously know that it's not a travel. So I, re I really appreciate that. And then obviously, uh, right before we wrap up, there were two other ones off, off that same topic I wanted to touch on. Jumping off one foot on an up and under, that's something that I, I see all over Twitter about how it's about how it's not a travel. And, and then in that same, I think they're both very similar in terms of pivoting after a jump stop, if, if you can kind of go into those two. Yeah, uh, there's two types of jump stops. You know, it's funny, when you become a director, you start going back to know that you're responsible for leading a team and you want to make sure that you are speaking things that you are aware of. And I never, I never put into words sometimes until I later realized, you know, there's two types of jump stops. You can, you can gather a ball with a foot on the ground, which is zero, and launch yourself and land on two feet. That's step one, even though you landed on two feet. And now you can actually pivot on one of those feet. You can't go, you can't, you know, do double feet. You got to decide whichever foot comes out first, the other foot is the pivot. So that's one jump stop. And that's the one most people see, but they get confused because there's another jump stop. Let's say you gather the ball and now you take your first step and launch and come down with two feet. Well, that's your second foot. Those two feet coming down, make for a stop on your second foot. Can you pivot? The answer is no, because as soon as you lift a foot and move, you've taken a third step. So I think something like that has to be uh, more drawn out for people. I, that's why I love working with B-Ball Breakdown and Coach Nick, because these are things that were done so far back in my own high school career in the 60s that officials at that time understood that where they where basketball is played um, in a real uh, populated location like big cities and uh, and big cities were the ones that were setting the tone of basketball movements and creativity and what have you and uh, you know now today I mean I get I get the Twitter feeds with with places from China where a guy will say, you know, Mr. Nunn, is, is, this a, is this a travel or is this a jump stop legal? Because kids, you know, sometimes you wonder who changes the, the, the entire um, dynamic of basketball. Is it the young ones coming up or is it the ones on the top that's, that, that, that have it and it trickles down or does it somehow launch upward? And I think it's both. I think the young people look at the, the moves of the, the more, uh, the more advanced players, but when it comes down to them, they also become creative in doing other things with it. So it's the chicken and egg thing, and it's a beautiful thing. So, um, so yeah, I think these are the kind of things I go over at People Will Breakdown. And uh, Coach Nick is separate from just the officiating piece; he does a tremendous job in coaching situations about games that went on and what may 
what players did when they shouldn't do or whatever have you. And uh, I think he's being looked at uh, by a lot of people because he does do a good show. And it's one of the reasons why I'm, I, I attach myself to him with, with that kind of telecast, uh, because it, um, I think it adds to the knowledge of the game. And he's a good teacher, even though he's not Phil Jackson or Pat Riley or Spolstra or any other great coaches we have, you know, in the league. He is a hardworking uh, YouTube journalist of coaching and you need people like that because I think we can all learn from that. Uh, you know, I wish I knew as much coaching as he does, but uh, he's learning a lot about officiating and it gives me a chance to share that and spread those words uh, uninterrupted, you know? And I, I, when I'm wrong, I'm wrong, like anything else. But most times I try to work hard to be correct. So we have something to work on for people when they watch, watch the show. Oh, definitely. And, and Coach Nick, obviously, uh, the work at B-Ball great Breakdown is great in terms of spreading that knowledge of the game. And to all my listeners, if you did not catch that the first time, it's that, that, that was just basketball officiating gospel. Press the rewind button, listen to that one, two, three times, maybe even five times, get up, visualize it because you like those are concepts that if, if you listen to it, okay, if you go off one foot, land, okay, like, and then you start grasping those concepts by doing the moves, you'll grasp it. And then you can obviously, whether you're, if you're playing, show that on the court and, and, and not, and not travel, or if you're coaching, you can now identify it. And when people start complaining or, 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 or issues arise, you have the knowledge and the confidence in your knowledge to say, I, I, I can approach this. And I, I, I know, I, I know I can also explain the rule as to why I'm right. Ronnie, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, the knowledge that I think listeners are going to get from this episode in and that they can practically apply to the game is just a, a complete goldmine of, of uh, basketball resource. So thank you so much. Right, it's a pleasure. Uh, one of the things that I have to say in closing is that coaches and referees must work together because if there's something, coaches should be as much uh, knowledgeable about things that are going on so when they have a point to make when an official is official is wrong, they should make that point. And for the reasons that we've both agreed upon of what's supposed to be done during the season. Um, one of the things I also noticed upon leaving the NBA was I created a program called New Hoops IQ. And New Hoops IQ was to teach players not to lose their aggressiveness, but how to avoid fouling and what risk fouling looked like compared to uh, really good chances to steal balls or get in position. And uh, I, I, I'm hoping to expand that with coaches. Not only I work one year with the Knicks in that regard, uh, I'm looking to work, you know, with some colleges and also some, um, uh, some NBA teams if I can, because if the players understand what they can do, because I was a player and instead of doing a swim move, how do you, how do you free yourself from somebody overplaying you so you can get this entry pass? So these are important techniques you can use that are permissible, allowable, and legal. And uh, New Hoops IQ is one of the things I combine with none better refs. So um, thank you for spending time with me today. And, uh, and again, I'm, I'm very proud of you in doing what you're doing. I hope what we did today is helpful to your folks and fans that, uh, that are listening to a guy that's growing to be successful. Thanks for listening to the Big Fellas Podcast. Check us out on all major social media platforms at Big Fellas Pod to join the chop up. You can also listen to us on every podcast platform on the planet. Stay tuned for the next episode, Big Fellas.